0: Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, I hope you're staying healthy, and I hope that you're staying safe. A little bit later on in the hour, we're going to meet Craig Price. He's the director of a new film called The Marijuana Chronicles. It's the fascinating true story of a 98-day marijuana-based medical experiment to assess the scientific, social, and physical effects of marijuana use on a group of 20 women. And this actually took place in Canada in 1972. And there are a bunch of twists and turns to this story, so stick around for that. We'll also meet June Millington, guitar player for the best 1970s band that you've never heard of. Formed in 1969, Fanny were the first all-female rock band to release an album on a major label and no less an authority than David Bowie called them one of the finest bands of their time. They're as important as anyone else who's ever been ever, he said. It just wasn't their time. We'll find out more about Fanny in just a little while when June Millington joins us. First though, Blue Rodeo's great killer joins me to talk about his new solo album, Share the Love. It's an album so good, he recorded it twice. Here's a little taste of the title. Share the Love. birth of Share the Love, the new solo album from Greg Keeler, from the man himself. Here's Greg Keeler. Share the Love had a different path to getting released than most records. There was a version done, it was mastered, it was ready to go, and then you played it live with some friends, and something kind of remarkable happened. What was it that made you change your mind about what version of the record to release?
1: Well, as you say, there was a record done, and I even had the acetate of the LP I had played the acetate, and it sounded great. And um, so we, you know, releasing during lockdown and shutdown and all this, we thought we needed a lot of visual information. We needed a lot of stuff to put on social media. Right. So we went over to the little community hall just east of me, Gore's Landing on Rice Lake. We set up. And over the course of two days, we filmed and recorded all the songs on the record. Came home, listened to the mixes, watched the film and went, this is better than the record. (laughs) And I thought it was just me. I thought maybe I'm too hot, you know, maybe I'm just, you know, and so, but everyone agreed. And then sent it to Steve Kane, who is the head of Warners in Canada and said, you know, I think this is better than than the LP and he listened to it and he goes I agree we got to make this the record of the download and the CD but what what Warners is going to do I think which is really nice on on whatever that record day I don't don't,
0: what is that called Uh, record day I think or record store day
1: record store day they're going to release the original studio version on for record store day
0: and what was the difference, do you think, between the studio version and then the live version?
1: Well, the studio version, which I, I really love as well, but it it was done over a period of time. Mm. My friend Jimmy Boskill and I, who plays in the Sheepdogs, and he plays in Blue Rodeo, and he has his own band called the Hometown Buttes. We were making a country record and folk cover sort of record. And... Once in a while, we do one of my original tunes. And after a while, I'd sort of collected enough songs to do a record. And um, and it's really a great record, there's no doubt. But there's something about six people sitting in a room, playing together, you know, no click tracks, no no overdubs. And just his band is great. All the people who sang on it, Melissa Payne as well, they're great singers. Like all the harmonies are fantastic. And there's just something about six people in a room and the energies of those musicians, you know. Yeah. Um that just there's there's just something to it. And it's that thing that you don't really know. It's that it, it's that sort of the river of love that flows between us all is is captured somehow in music and song.
0: And do you think that because you did this during the pandemic, and we should just point out that when you went to this community hall, everyone was tested and everyone was socially distanced and all that kind of stuff. Uh, People complain about that, but there were, everything was done very safely. Do you think that there's something about not having played with uh, a band for however long it's been that really brought out something different in those sessions again?
1: Well, I, you know, I, I haven't thought that, but I think, I think that's true. You know, I think that there is something to, um, uh, there's a freshness and newness and excitement to it that uh, was, you know, sort of captured on tape. And, and that's sort of a dream. You know like i've had a few moments in my career where that has happened profoundly you know like five days was one of those sort of records where you know within the course of five days we recorded a whole record and you know everybody was on and everybody was you know jim and i were in good good throat we were singing well and it just worked out and uh so i feel very lucky and uh, that this would happen to an old geezer like me
0: you're listening to my interview with blue rodeo's greg keeler his new solo album share the love is available now
1: it's a very personal
0: album Uh, a lot of the songs sprung from uh, some personal tragedy Uh, and you you say that songs have always been your way to process what's going on in your life uh is it different when you're processing writing songs rather than just sitting down to write a song on a Tuesday because the mood hits you? Or is it always a process?
1: For the most part, the last few years, it's always a process. And this record was the death of a very close friend and a girlfriend of four or five years breaking up with me at the same time. And that put me into a tailspin and it made me examine my life and wonder why my relationships always end up with either me leaving or they leaving. And it made me go deep into my uh, my being, trying to figure it out. And songs are sort of like the ladder and the safety net that take me down into the depths of my uh, uh, psychological and emotional mud.
0: Do you think that sitting down and and writing a song about something that is deeply personal to you opens up some kind of channel because you are so comfortable writing and and playing and singing that it puts you in a different uh, frame of mind as compared to if you were just sitting down and talking about An issue with someone does it come a little easier
1: because it's music? There's a certain resonance to singing, and you know, I love singing. Like I, I try to sing every day, and you know, just because it, it just makes you feel so good to sing. Mm. So when when I sit down with my, my my deep Cape Breton. Melancholy. Yep. Um, it just sort of opens up something in me, and the melody and the way the guitar sounds and all of that, you know, it just it helps me focus on that thing that is so upsetting, disturbing, or or heartbreaking to me. Mm-hmm. And and so the core, the verse is sort of like the. The question, the problem, and the chorus is often the resolve that sort of lifts me out of it a bit. Right. And, and so I guess what the song allows me is perspective, to be able to go in there with perspective, and it allows me a way out as well.
0: White Dove, which is the opening track of the song or of the album. Uh, is about the first guitar that you ever played. It's named after the first guitar that you ever played in Alberta in 1975. Uh, tell me a little bit about what made you pick up the the guitar. Were you always interested in music? Uh, how did well, it how did how did that land in your hand?
1: Well, yeah, I was a music freak. You know, I, my whole life changed with with the Beatles and Dylan, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, Jim and I were buddies then. Jim and I, in 74, Jim and I, with two other friends, we bought a school bus. And we gutted it and fixed it all up. And we <laughs> drove out west. And we ended up in, Jim was in Banff and I was in Lake Louise. And uh, my roommate had a man guitar. And he had an Everly Brothers book and a Gordon Lightfoot book. And so I would sit with the book and the chord charts and, and learn those songs. Jim could play guitar, and he and his friends would sit around and drink and get high and play music, and I was always envious of that. I wanted to um, join, but I was too self-conscious even to sing on a chorus in those days. When they were just about to close Bassey Hall for the renovations, uh, there was some talk of us doing a show with Gordon Lightfoot. Cause, cause Lightfoot had played Massey Hall the most, right, at 145 times, mm-hmm. and we were we were a distant second at 37 times,
0: <laughs> and that's like that's a record that will never be beaten.
1: No, that's, that's Herculean. It's just yeah. absurd, you know. And but I was just thinking of the arc of of my life, and that 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 that, that young man who sat down in in lake louise to first learn how to play guitar to coming to a point where being considered to play the closing show with gordon lightfoot at massey hall i was just like i was dumbfounded a little bit and uh, so that song is sort of like a song to the glory of guitar and i and i was thinking very much of a lot of my friends because you know, most of my friends are musicians and mm-hmm. singer-songwriter types, and and how important just the jangle of a guitar is, and how transporting it is, and what a great what a great machine it is. You know, like I love that that somebody like uh, uh, oh, Jesus, my brain is so bad. <laughs> this is a this this guitar stops is a, is against fascism. Who was that? That oh, you? Woody Guthrie. Woody Guthrie, how could I forget Woody Guthrie? For but you know that it, it, it's been such a strong instrument of protest and, and 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 political insight, and it's also been such a romantic instrument of of seduction and love, and so, and I just think of a lot of my friends who are still, you know, the the, the line in the song is that high and wild sound, mm. and we're just we we just we're jonesing for it all the time.
0: Do you still find new things on guitar after all this time, starting in 1975, as you pick up a guitar this week, will you find the lost chord? Will you find something new in there?
1: Um, You never know when those moments are going to come, but I think that being a songwriter and primarily at this point in my life, I'm primarily a songwriter over a guitar player. The guitar is is the way that I write Mm. and so I'm constantly finding ways to you know wake up the songwriter to create some sort of emotional tension in chord changes and rhythms that are evocative to a lyric and and some sort of (laughs) mood.
0: is a song on the album that I found unexpected. Uh, I loved uh, so many of the songs. Uh, White uh, Dove is a particular favorite, What Am I Gonna Do, I loved. Uh, but this one song and it's a cover and I didn't know this song at all, even though I know a little bit about Bobby Darren, Me and Mr. Honer, And yeah. this is a song that when you listen to the lyrics, it's a, a, a straight up long haired 1960s protest song. Uh, And that it's from, I guess, his later period after he stopped wearing the tuxedo and singing Mac the Knife uh, and started singing these kind of songs. uh, I was surprised to see it here. It it seems like just this obscure chestnut uh, that you found. What's your history with that song?
1: Well, Bobby Darin made two records in the 60s, as you talk about, and where he took off the toupee. Mm -hmm. And he lived in that little trailer in Malibu, right? right? And he started smoking a lot of weed and doing a lot of drugs and living the hippie lifestyle. And so these two records by by Bobby Costello, that was his real name. And so these records are Bobby Costello and they are fantastic, uh, funky country records with fantastic lyrics. And so that song has, Blue Rotor used to cover that once in a while. Mm -hmm. And you know, the record, was sort of done. And I thought, Oh, let's just try this one. I've always loved this song and it's such a great lyric. And, you know, I sort of like that. It's a song of a police brutality and just, you know, that, that has been a constant theme since there has been people and police.
0: Yep. And when I was listening to it, your performance, it just seems like you're having fun. You can feel that you're having fun as you sing that song.
1: Well, it's a funky little band, you know. Yeah. Like when you think of all the sort of styles that are on that record, those musicians are just—it's a joy to play with them. Yeah, and it's a joy to sing with. them. So, you know, as you say, it's a—it's a—it's a cool little tune.
0: You're listening to my interview with Blue Rodeo's Greg Keeler. His new solo album, Share the Love, is available now. You're on a farm, right? Are you? Uh, so you're pretty isolated already. I would imagine.
1: I'm pretty isolated, you know, and, and when it all first started, I'm a, I'm a 66 year old diabetic, right? Yeah. And when I got the flu last time I got, I got ketone acetosis, I got real sick. So I was really scared. I was, and I thought it was going to be much worse. I thought it was going to be like a Spielberg movie and the hazmat suits would be driving around in trucks. Right. And, you know, I really thought it was going to be like that. Yeah. So I didn't go out of the house much for three months and people brought me groceries. And then I sort of loosened up a bit and, and now I get around, you know, share the
0: love is great.
1: Thank you. Richard. Uh, I've, been,
0: I've been listening to it the last few days. It's fantastic. The songs are, are terrific. And, uh, and thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. I appreciate it, Richard. And it was nice to see your face. That was Greg Keeler talking about his new album, share the love. It's, an eclectic rock album, but there's still lots of that kind of signature blue rodeo sound that comes from Keeler's acoustic guitars. There's a bit of a psychedelic tinge to it. Uh, you're going to like this. And you can find it wherever you legally download and buy music called Share the Love by Greg Keeler. June Millington joins me now. She's the guitar player of a band called Fanny. The group was founded by June and her sister, bass player Jean. They'd been playing music together since they moved from the Philippines to California in the early 1960s. They had a number of different band names, but under one of those band names, they attracted the attention of producer Richard Perry, who signed them to reprise records in 1969 under the name Fanny. They released four records. Success did not come easily their way. The band broke up and were largely forgotten about, despite a rave from David Bowie, who said that they were as important as anyone else who made records in the 1970s. They were the first all-female band to release a record on a major label, and now they are the subject of a new documentary called Fanny, The Right to Rock. Here's June Millington to get you up to speed on what Fanny is all about. Congratulations <laughs> on the film.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, it's. I think it's gonna change things.
0: In, you know? in what way?
2: Well, one thing is that a lot of people actually don't know who Fanny is. So, you know, that's one way. But the other thing is that the, de- the amount of details that we get into in the film are, um, some of them are really actually previously unknown or the fact, that we're saying it directly into the camera i think makes a difference and then plus you have people like bonnie ray and joe elliott and Gayland dorsey and just a whole bunch of people giving their you know like their first impressions of us i mean we met bonnie and uh when was it i think it was 71 in austin you know so <laughs> Well, how does it
0: feel now that this film is about to come out and you've got people like Bonnie Raitt and there's that amazing quote from David Bowie. How does it feel now to have gone through all that, come out the other end of it, and now uh, at this point in your career, you've just released a new album, uh, to be getting all this, I guess, belated praise?
2: Well, I'd I'd say that there is a feeling of relief, but also one of great surprise. I would say till... ah sometime in the 2000s. I mean, the the amount of people who knew about Fanny or even cared seemed minuscule to us. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I have to say that the Beat Club video seemed to change everything because people could actually see how we played. And honestly, for me, for example, Ain't That Peculiar, felt like just another day at the office. I mean, we were doing our thing and doing it at our best as always, because Fanny always played Full throttle, you know, Mm -hmm. a thousand percent. But that's how we did it at every show, at every appearance. And I didn't think to myself, oh, people are going to see this in 2018, 2019, 2020 and freak out, which is what they do. Absolutely. So that in-between period, I was involved with other things. I kind of, I mean, I didn't really forget about Fanny, but I cause myself to forget the hard times as Mm -hmm. well as the good times. I just put it at the back of my mind. Oh, nobody cares. Nobody knows, you know? So I think this is a time. uh, I I definitely, I know that this is a time of resurgence and I can, I can feel it coming up. You know, you know, these things. Yeah.
0: Did you feel that uh, when you were in Fanny uh, first, Uh, uh, all-female band to release a record on a major label and you know there's all sorts of firsts there uh Mm -hmm. that you had to play twice as hard as the guys just so people would take you seriously
2: oh well that was since we played in the svelte starting in late 64 that was definitely uh uh, you know that was a milestone for the audience because at first they were jeering at us or they Mm -hmm. wouldn't even actually outwardly jeer, many did, but they'd stand there, you know, like with their arms crossed. They didn't expect <laughs> any, they expected us to fail right away, you know? And how we knew we were succeeding is number one, you know, those guys would get smiles on their faces and, and their girlfriends were smiling from the jump, but they didn't talk, right? Oh, yeah, um, But people jumped up to get on the dance floor and we were a huge success just from that standpoint. We knew how to groove. And then we learned to develop our parts and play, like I learned the Steve Copper parts, for example. You know, that's important stuff. So we were setting ourselves uh, kind of a daily lesson plan when we rehearsed so that by the time we got to LA in 69, we could totally play. We just had to learn how to record and that's where Richard Perry, our producer at the time, uh, comes into the picture,
0: isn't it? The story that at the Troubadour they said, "All right, we'll let you girls play for five minutes, and then you oh, get yeah, up there totally. and blow everyone away."
2: Yeah, I mean, people were literally standing on the table, stamping their feet. <laughs> I mean, the place went insane. i You know, I mean, really, they lost their minds. And that same guy came up to Jean and said, "Oh, could you just play a little bit more?" and jean bless her heart you know her long neck you know she just looked down at him and said well you said five minutes you know she, <laughs> she, she made him kind of beg, right but we were happy to do it of course because you know the place absolutely went bonkers and that was a great moment for us really really fantastic and nikki wasn't even in the band yet it was Addie lee on guitar and i was playing a lead guitar and i was playing rhythm you know so even at that point we totally knew what we knew what we were doing.
0: You're listening to my interview with June Millington, guitar player for the rock band Fanny, and one of the subjects of Fanny, the right to rock, a documentary playing at the 2021 Hot Docs Film Festival and available for audiences across Canada. Check hotdocs.ca for details. You toured with a giant axe. I mean, you toured with uh, the Kings and Slade and Jethro Hall and Humble Pie, all sorts of people like that. And there's a story oh, yeah. about you're in England Club owners takes her around backstage and goes, uh, here's the room for the girls, and then there's the room yeah. for the band. Well, that must um, have just been constant for you.
2: It was constant. See, I don't even remember that. For me, it was like, oh god, just another, you know, dude, you you had you didn't even look at the promo, <laughs> you know. It's like when we first went out as fanny, people kind of expected a topless band. Now, <laughs> imagine, right? That because the first out of uh, country gig that we did. I, I guess I was 18 or 19 and Jean was 17 or 18. And we went to Canada, actually. Our first world tour, you know, we played Winnipeg. And I'll never forget, oh my God, we had to bring the B3 and everything up the stairs, you know, and they expected a topless band. When I say they, I mean the audience because the band before us was four women and they were called Eight of a Kind. So it was not unusual, you know? I It didn't really surprise us, but it was like, by the time we got to Fanny, it's was like, oh, we're so over this, you know? I, and 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 the oft-repeated line was, my God, they can play, mm-hmm. you know, from the jump. I mean, uh, t- just today, Linda Wolf, who took a lot of photos of, of us back in the day, uh, posted something that Danny Lane, a musician whom we knew, um, hosted about a gig that we did out in Azusa um, and I remember Joe Cocker was there, uh, uh, Lowell George and the keyboard player from Little Feet was there you know etc but the thing that Danny remembers is that right away people start to say my god they can play you know and this is from before Fanny's first album so right. this would have been early 1970 or something like that you know so we knew what we were doing we knew what we were doing and that's the thing that's and we went towards that goal very intentionally and we worked so hard i mean believe me it was not an easy job to be uh it ended up being four women but a lot of women came through you know before what became the fab four um It wasn't easy, you know. We had to be completely serious and focused, and that's what we were. I, I never spent a lot of time picking up people at gays and getting stoned and you know whatever that that sort of picture of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. That wasn't us. That wasn't us. We were working twenty four seven. I we didn't have to get up at seven or eight in the morning and start by doing two or three interviews. You know, get on the plane, do two or three interviews, do the gig, you know, etc. It was hard work.
0: That was June Millington, guitar player for the rock band Fanny. David Bowie said they were just colossal and wonderful and nobody's ever mentioned them. Well, that will change with the release of a new documentary called Fanny, The Right to Rock, which is playing at the Hot Docs Film Festival. Here's the thing about Hot Docs, though. It's nationwide this year because of the pandemic. It's online. You can stream the movies. For more information on Fanny, The Right to Rock, and everything else playing at Hot Docs, go to hotdocs.ca. The road to legal weed has been a twisty, turny journey with many strange detours along the way, including a Canadian study called Project Venus. A new film called The Marijuana Conspiracy, now on VOD, details the inner workings of this experiment that assigned toke times to a group of female test subjects in hopes of proving that marijuana would turn them into some sort of hippified zombies. Joining me on Zoom is Craig Price, screenwriter and director of The Marijuana Conspiracy. This all started uh, with an article in the Toronto Star that grabbed your attention. Tell me what the article was and what it was about it that really made your your ears stand up?
3: Well, I I was looking for different projects to develop, and so I always keep a pile going, and this one always kept rising to the top. (laughs) It's uh, the, basically what the article was about was this human experiment that took place in Toronto in 1972. And um, the more I, like, it's a very well-written article um, by Diana and very detailed article. And what attracted me most of all was the actual characters themselves, and they went on this really interesting journey. Um, the backstory to it is that in 1972, there was an awful lot going on in Toronto and in Canada. With um, they were very interested in street drugs because they thought it was de- de- decaying the society, and, they, and marijuana at the time was a considered a uh, like a, a narcotic basically. So Trudeau was doing these experiments to see if they were as bad as they were, and in the meantime, Ontario was doing these experiments to say that they were were gonna be bad. Robarts and Trudeau were exact opposites of their opinion on marijuana. And there's a really interesting reason to why Trudeau was interested, but that comes out in the film. But so when I heard the backstory to it, I thought this is really interesting because they had funding to do these studies. And that was sort of the setup for what attracted me. And then started to talk about how um, these, uh, they've never done experiment on the effects of marijuana on females. And when I, uh, back then there was a stereotype that, that marijuana made women really promiscuous and they jump on the roof and play the saxophone naked and <laughs> all this crazy stuff going on. And so um, they said this social scientist here decided that he was gonna do a study about the physiological and social effects of marijuana and women. What he did was he took a group of 20 women only, with 10, 10 um, in the non-smoking and 10 in the smoking to see what would happen when you took the drug how productive you would be, and they had a certain assumption. Ontario was going to prove that if you use marijuana, you'd be less productive, and society would fall apart because nobody would work. We'd all just lie around and get high, basically. Right. What happened in the study was that they were That's not the results that happened. The the, the, the the smoking side were just as productive, and sometimes more productive than the non-smoking side. So that's when it gets really interesting, because they decided to sort of. Change tried to change very subtly and not so subtly the outcome of the experiment. So that whole backstory really interested me. But what attracted me the most was the actual women themselves and, and what they went through. And that's where I think the heart of the film is because it does deal with um, their, it, it deals with their um, five different, we follow five different women who were part of the study and they were all from different walks of life. And they came to this thing with really high expectations. They thought, first of all, the biggest thing was they're gonna make money, but also they looked at it as kind of like hippie camp. You can show up and you know, smoke weed and get paid. How, how good is that? Um, and so not to, again to give too much away, but things do change, but it's really about these women and how they ended up having this really unlikely sisterhood and how they bonded together and went on this journey and sort of helped help overcome a lot of adversity and things.
0: When you were putting this together, you met with some of the original test subjects. Uh, what did you learn from meeting the people, the women that were there in 1972?
3: Just hearing their experiences um, firsthand, it was really uh, it was really powerful and, like I say, very vivid. And it let me write a much better script because they were being so honest and open with me. And just to add that what my arrangement with them was, I said I wasn't gonna use their real names. Mm -hmm. uh, And I also did a little bit of compositing of the characters so they weren't immediately identifiable. And with that, they they actually opened up even further, which is why I get further and further into their character and their stories. And um, so it was, it was great. And it's also, they had some, some individual stories and then they had some things that were very similar that they talked about. You're listening to my interview with Craig Price, director of the Marijuana
0: Conspiracy, now on VOD. Well, you talk about writing the script and going through this process. And for me, uh, I was wondering as I watched it about finding the balance, both as a writer and a director of this story, between the, the docudrama aspect of the story uh, there's humor in here. There's even stuff that borders on horror, I think, in here a little yeah. bit. So tell me yeah. about
3: finding your way through that maze and making it feel cohesive. Oh, it was actually really a challenge because it was it was a combination of taking the characters and and I, and I believe, and I can tell you after this bit of a story, they have seen the film, some of them. Uh, but I believe that my job was to um, it, it's not a documentary. And it, you have to fit into a narrative structure, so that's that's the first challenge when you're doing true stories about people's lives, and it's it's also dealing with uh, an ensemble, and and so it, it, that was another challenge, and then it's dealing with the peripheral characters. So it was like a, to me it was like a giant jigsaw puzzle, and the and then I had to take a further layer, which was the, the societal more, mores going on and the laws of the time and this experiment itself, and integrate all of that. But how I did it was I made sure that the women were the ones who centered all of the stories and everything around them, the the peripheral characters, the experiment. That was sort of like this really interesting backdrop of what was going on in their lives.
0: Do you think that this movie will resonate with audiences because it is about uh, a study that was manipulated without the consent of the people taking part in the study, uh, given that over the last year and a half or whatever it's been in the last 14 months, uh, health concerns are at the top of everyone's list. And we're getting a lot of health information from the government. And uh, people are skeptical in a lot of ways about a lot of the things we're hearing. Do you think that this film will resonate because of that?
3: That's an excellent question. Um, we made it before our 14. 14- well, hour long it's been. Yeah, yeah. Um, it took a whole new level when, when, when people started experiencing their own quarantines, uh, their own lockdowns. And, uh, and again, this doesn't give too much away, but they spent 98 days uh, in a very small space mm-hmm. and not did not get to go outside, uh, did not get to meet anybody. They only had each other. And that affected them more than the actual marijuana and, and sometimes the excessive doses they had to receive it was a very psychologically challenging thing. So in some ways, it's as far as how it resonates, it's become almost a global experience, what we've all gone through, what they've gone through. And another thing about it that's been almost hard is to see just how much, is, this was 49 years ago now, how much is still happening in our society, including things like, we're given all this information about vaccines and there's people who don't want it and massive people don't want it. And all these political agendas and, and motives. And, that's sort of what's happening to them is that there's people that are over them that are telling them how to do something and they and they it's not to their expectation so things change for them so we have and again not to give too much but there's so much that's still happening now that happens in the film beyond what we've experienced in the last 14 14 um months or so so i i think it will resonate, and I also think what will resonate is the fact that the themes and the human condition of this film we all experience. That was Craig Price talking about his new movie, The Marijuana
0: Conspiracy. You'll find it on VOD, and it's fascinating stuff. Set in 1972, the story begins as five young women are recruited to take part as paid subjects in a university cannabis study, and it takes off from there. Interesting stuff. Check it out. Find it on VOD right now. I also want to thank Greg Keeler for stopping by to talk about his new album, Share the Love. Also, a big thanks to June Millington of the rock band Fanny. You can find out all about them, and it's fascinating, in the documentary Fanny, The Right to Rock. Of course, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.